London Calling, London Walks Connecting. This is London. This is London Walks. Streets Ahead. Story Time. History Time. It's February 20th, 2024. Today's pin, the news story pinned to the top of this podcast, is a lift from the telegraph about scientists conclusively proving that there are gender differences in the human brain, that the brains of men and women operate differently. Some of those differences, the male brain is 10% larger than the female brain. That has nothing to do with intelligence, though. It's just a matter of bigger bodies require bigger brains. Other differences, though, do look to be of some significance. The male brain has stronger front-to-back connections and is optimized for motor skills. The female brain has stronger side-to-side connections and is optimized for intuitive thinking. And not so fast, you male Neanderthals who picked up on that business of the male brain being bigger. The counterweight there is that the female brain has more gray matter. And what are the possible implications of the front-to-back and side-to-side connection differences? Well, as it happens, it looks like there may be some health considerations. The scientists are saying men are more likely to develop alcohol dependence. Men are three times more likely to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. They're four times more likely to have autism. They're twice as likely to develop Parkinson's disease. Turning to women, they're twice as likely to have depression. Ditto, twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's. Four times more likely to develop multiple sclerosis and more likely to have a stroke. Well, that's all hugely cheerful, isn't it? But in my estimation, and I'm the decider, I'm the editor of this podcast, in my estimation, male and female brain differences are more interesting than the -the run-of-the-mill traffic news and domestic violence and the knife fight in a Wimbledon McDonald's that is the best London can do so far today in the way of hard news stories though I was tempted by the headline, Epping Chef in Court Over Deer Shot Dead in Romford Park. That one's got the ring of a 21st century poaching offense, so naturally it set my historical gray matter twitching. Anyway, moving on. Today's random. And look, since our pin, our jumping-off point today, was men and women and their brains, let's hoe a bit more in that row. Let's take a quick look at London sex and London language. Language originates from the brain, and sex, well, in at least some of its guises, it's a male-female thing. Aside here, the single best piece of guiding advice I ever received came from a grizzled old veteran guide right after I started guiding. That was over 40 years ago. He said, If you see their eyes start to glaze over, just talk about sex or death, and you'll have them back in Stanta, just like that. 
Anyway, sex and language in London. London's all about commerce. It's dedicated to selling. And that's one driver of prostitution. The poor have nothing to sell, so they sell their bodies. It was ever thus in London. And elsewhere, I'm sure. All the way back to Roman times. London and sex as business. That matrix is attested to by the language. Famously, the London streetwalkers come on is, you looking for business? A different cup of tea, so to speak, from the Parisian fille des joies, breathy, l'amour. Anyway, here's the main point. One measure of the historical prevalence and ubiquity of London prostitution was its lexicon, the countless nicknames for prostitutes. Tarts, madams, malls, fireships, buttered buns, doxies, ladybirds, punks, trug moldies, mother midnights, drabs, punchable nuns, squirrels, mocks, mackerels, cracks, cats, trolls, blowsabellas, jilts, smuts, bunters, wagtails, does. The list stretches out to the cracks of doom. And on that note, time for some refreshment, some fresh country air. Country air in the heart of London. So yes, this is today's ongoing, our continuing, our ongoing engagement with London. To start with, it's a straight lift from a moment on my Sunday morning Hampstead walk. As you'd expect, Hampstead Heath looms large on that walk. Hampstead wouldn't be Hampstead without Hampstead Heath. So I take my walkers across three different stretches of the heath. The West Heath, the main part of the heath, and that bit through the woods to the Vale of Health Pond. The West Heath is where our heath walking begins. It's where I introduce the heath. I say, Hampstead Heath is enormous. All by itself, it's 10% bigger than Central Park in New York City. And yet... It's only 2% of the total of London's public green. This is the greenest major city on the planet. And that's an important reason why London is the most livable city on the planet. The acreage tells the story. 47% of London is public green. 25% of Manhattan is public green. 9% of Paris is public green. And the thing about Hampstead Heath is... It's an enormous stretch of countryside, smack dab in the middle of one of the greatest cities in the world. You can get lost on Hampstead Heath, and the sensation is uncanny. You feel like you're lost in the countryside, and yet instinctively you know you're in the center of this great metropolis. No other city in the world has anything like this. And then I interject a personal story. I say, my best American pal lives in Manhattan. He loves Central Park. We always have this spirited debate about the merits of Central Park as opposed to Hampstead Heath. It's a debate that I always win. 
I say to him, look, David, we share the same name. I say, look, David, it's all in the name. It's a park. It's manicured. It's man-made. It's artificial. This is a heath. It's countryside. It's the genuine article. It's the difference between processed food and fresh food, whole foods, organic food. There's a world of difference. Now, as it happens, on last Sunday's walk, at that point, one of my walkers spoke up. He said, I live in New York. I work in conservation. And I'm here to tell you, you're right about this. Your friend doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, it turned out that my walker, his name was Lloyd, was practically a neighbor of my pal. And we discovered that they even went to the same university. So just for fun, I asked Lloyd if, at walk's end, he'd be willing to elaborate on his remarks. The idea was I'd send the file to David, with a case-closed label plastered all over it. David, meet Lloyd. He's a fellow New Yorker, but like you, he's also well acquainted with London. You lived here for a couple of years. Lloyd spends a month here every year. You've got a lot in common, right down to both of you being Tufts alumni. And what's really to the point, Lloyd's got professional expertise. He works in conservation, and he's going to dispel your delusions, set you straight about the merits of Hampstead Heath as opposed to Central Park. Well, of course, then I was off. I thought, not only am I going to send this recording to my friend, I'm going to put it up on the London Walks podcast. Because here, after all, we've got an articulate, thoughtful New Yorker talking not just about the differences between Hampstead Heath and Central Park, but also about how New York City stacks up against London. This is worth disseminating to a wider audience. So here you go. Lloyd and I sat in the front pew of St. John's at Walk's End and had a little chat about the two greatest cities of the Western world, and especially their lungs, their green expanses. Okay, little D. It's big D here. I'm sitting in St. John's, the parish church of Hampstead. I've just finished the Hampstead Walk, and i got a really wonderful guy, a walker named Lloyd, who's got a lot in common with you. He lives in Manhattan, but he knows London very well. He uh, spends a month every year uh, in uh, in London, and he actually went to Tufts. And I told him about our debates about uh, Central Park as opposed uh, to uh, uh, Hampstead Heath. And when I said, oh, uh, David went to Tufts, uh, Lloyd said, uh, well... Uh, even a jumbo can make mistakes. And Lloyd is a, uh, he's an important, uh, he's a mover and shaker in the world of conservation in New York. So he's got a few things to say about, you know, our weekly debate about the merits of Hampstead Heath as opposed to Central Park. I'm going to hand you over to Lloyd. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Lloyd, first well, of all. Well, I've lived in New York. I grew up on Long Island. I've lived in New York since 1984. And, um, I, uh, have always, well, most of the time I've lived not far from Central Park. Um, and Central Park is a truly wonderful and important place, and I'm really glad it's there. But I have found, uh, particularly recently, that it is overrun with noise-producing elements that really detract from making it a place of quiet, solitude, tranquility, restfulness. Um, 
uh, it's filled with vendors. Uh, it's filled with people making music illegally, uh, performances that are not legal. In recent years, it's become filled with not only the horse and buggies, which I never minded. And when I was a kid, my grandparents lived at the Sherry Netherlands, so I used to go into the Central Park Zoo with my grandmother all the time. Um, but now you have these pedicabs, and they all play really loud music, uh, you know, amplified music. And when you compare that to where we were walking on the Hampstead Heath or even Hyde Park in London, it's no contest. Hampstead Heath is a place of natural, uh, it's nature, it's tranquility, it, you can find solitude there. Uh, Central Park is just, it's so busy. And although I live four blocks from Central Park, I live on the Upper East Side, I really prefer cities where there are small pockets of nature all around me, like London, like Paris. David told us that only 9% of Paris is green space, 25, 25% of New York, 47% of London. And even Paris, when you walk around Paris, you feel like nature is all around you because of these little pockets, parks like the, um, I used to live up in the, near the Parc Monceau, and there were just little plazas, and even in London you have the same thing, Chelsea Green, these little tiny places that I really, really find are much more, they're respites. Central Park is, um, it's like, it's like a destination. And don't get me wrong, I'm really glad it's there. I've witnessed its transformation. I was, uh, I worked for the Bryan Park Corporation, which restored Bryan Park. And I think Bryan Park is an amazing, uh, plot of green space. And, um, I'm very proud of the work we did to make that such a mecca, uh, for people. So you work in conservation, so you've got well, some genuine expertise in these matters. I, d I mean, I did work for Bryant Park Corporation, yeah. Grand Central Partnership, 31st Street Partnership, and I do, I do nonprofit work, volunteer work, not my, not how I make a living, yeah. but I'm on the board of the New York Landmarks Conservancy and so on. I got my annual solicitation from Central Park Conservancy a couple months ago. And I normally support them. And this year, I really wanted to write them a letter with no check and say, you need, now that you have restored the park to greatness in many ways, you now have to take it to the next level and get rid of the things that detract from making it a place of tranquility and restfulness, which is particularly acute on the weekends. It's not as bad during the week. So... Frankly, for my money, I prefer the European model, and I prefer the little pockets of greenery all around to this giant, massive place, which has become, in its own right, uh, a destination filled with things that are detracting, um, in spite of its natural beauty, in spite of its man-made beauty, all of which is there. I'm not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but... There are some activities that go on at Central Park that need to be clamped down a little bit and tidied up. So in a, in a matchup between Hampstead Heath and Central Park, for me, would you say it's no contest? Life, no contest. 
No, I'd take Hampstead Heath any day. Any day, yeah. <laughs> and, but I wish Central Park well. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it because uh, uh, you first heard about how uh, David about the debate David and I have about Central Park as opposed yeah. to the mayor. And I immediately said. It, it is no contest. Whoever your friend is, he's wrong. Now, <laughs> that, of course, is a little bit harsh, and I'm being competitive like most New Yorkers are, even though it's in the reverse way. And um, I want Central Park to be great in execution as well as in its substance. But right now... It's too crazy for my taste. <laughs> this is just wonderful. Uh, and so, and how about the fact that the vendors have tip cups? So you're not only supposed to buy a hot dog, then you're supposed to give the guy a tip for giving you a hot dog. I mean, come on, the world's gone mad. So it was. Uh, it was. This sort of falls into kind of two parts. So on the Heath, uh, you know, I mentioned the debate that I have with David about the merits, and you know, we talked about. It, and this is when it came out. All of this, and then much later on in the walk, I overheard you saying that uh, you went to Tufts. Yeah. And I piped yeah. up and I said, well, David and Margie went to Tufts. Yeah. And you, and I said, you even said, a, even a jumbo can make mistakes. <laughs> and I'm going back, I'm going back for my 40th reunion in May and I can't wait. I'm looking forward. <laughs> I, and my son is there now. So I have very happy memories of Tufts where I made my best friends. And, um, yeah, you know, that's just, you have one feather in your cap, but on the case of Hampstead Heath versus Central Park, you ought to come for a more exploratory visit next time. <laughs> Lloyd, you said something I thought was really telling as well about about New York without the restaurants and the theaters and the museums and so on and so forth. I mean, that was... Well, my observation during COVID was that New York is an incredibly vibrant, exciting, dynamic place. And it's a place filled with tons of creativity and young people flock to it. I have three children. They love it and they wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Um, that being said, when you stripped away from New York, the restaurants, the theater, the nightlife, the culture, it's kind of ragged around the edges. It's a bit, it's a, I mean, I, what I said was it's kind of a dump. And it, it's, it's, I find, um, the grid makes life in New York much simpler, particularly in Manhattan, but it's kind of dull. Um, compared to walking around London or walking around Paris or walking around Rome or cities like that. And, you know, of course, in life, nothing is 100% good or 100% bad. I think New York was so exciting when I was in my 20s. I just ate up every inch of it. I loved it. And it was more dangerous in those days. But that was kind of exciting, too. But in its getting cleaned up and sort of homogenized and sanitized and with the influx of tourists, I mean, we have 63 million tourists. We're on track, I think, in 2023, we had 63 million tourists, which surpassed the pre-COVID record. Um, it's changed. It just feels very different. The, the, my favorite book on New York is called Vanishing New York, How a Great City Lost Its Soul. And it's written by a guy named Jeremiah Moss. And Jeremiah Moss says that Pre-Giuliani, and I was a big fan of Giuliani as mayor in his first term particularly. I thought he did a great job. Um, Pre-Giuliani, suburbanites thought of New York as, as the, where the devil did his, did his deeds. And post-Giuliani and post-Bloomberg, the suburbanites have now conquered New York. 
And so you have, I mean, Bloomberg opened up for big box retailers like Target, which is, you know, I, I shop there from time to time. There's one near my house. It's convenient. But it, it is a place completely devoid of any soul or well, character. Well, but, yeah. And to me, great urban environments are places where every nook and cranny has soul and character. And characters who give them that sensibility that makes you feel like, wow, this is an exciting place. And so Jeremiah Moss captures a lot of how I have felt. And even when he was pushing it a little too far, meaning I felt like he was pushing against order, which I was a big fan of by the work I did for the business improvement districts. In the end, I came around to understanding the points that he was making. So that's actually a good book you probably Yeah, yeah, too. I'll definitely look that Vanishing up and get New that. Yeah. 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 Thank you very, You're welcome. very, very much. <laughs> My <laughs> pleasure. It's gonna be I so hope fun. I contributed to the rivalry in a, <laughs> in a constructive fashion. I'll, I'll let you know what he's going to be. Okay. Yeah, that's it's absolutely good. brilliant. You've been listening to This is London, the London Walks podcast, emanating from walks.com. Home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company. London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just the right size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for 20 pounds a walk, but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money, or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company on the planet, You do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason people who know go with London Walks. It's the reason we've got a big following A lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished, in many cases, distinguished professionals. By way of example, Stuart Purvis, the former editor and subsequently CEO of Independent Television News, and Lisa Honan, who had a distinguished career as a diplomat. Lisa was the governor of St. Helena, 
the island where Napoleon breathed his last, and, some say, had his penis amputated. Napoleon didn't feel a thing. If things the mot juste, he was dead. Stuart and Lisa, both of them CBEs, are just a couple of our headline acts. Or take our Ripper Walk. It's the creation of the world's leading expert on Jack the Ripper, Donald Rumbelow, the author of the definitive book on the subject. Britain's most distinguished crime historian, Donald is, in the words of the Jack the Ripper A to Z, internationally recognized as the leading authority on Jack the Ripper. Donald's emeritus now, but he's still the guiding light on our Ripper Walk. He curates the walk, he trains up and mentors our Ripper Walk guides, feels any and all questions they throw at him. The London Walk's aristocracy of talent, its all-star team of guides, includes a former London mayor. It includes the former chief music critic for the Evening Standard. It includes the chair of the Association of Professional Tour Guides and the former chair of the Guild of Guides. It includes barristers, doctors, geologists, museum curators, a former Museum of London archaeologist, historians, university professors, one of them a distinguished Cambridge University paleontologist. It includes criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company and National Theatre actors, a bevy of MVPs, Oscar winners, people who've won the big one, the Guide of the Year Award. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks Guide. And as we put it, London Walks Guides make the new familiar and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London walks. And that's by way of saying, good walking and good Londoning, one and all. See you next time.